A FAM production. Furniture and mattress. FAM.news. Welcome to Just Stories with BT, a show that brings you remarkable stories of success, comedy, failure, and redemption directly from the people who've shaped the landscape of our professional worlds. You'll laugh, you might cry, but most importantly, you'll be motivated to keep pushing to become a better version of you. Just Stories skips the cheesy 10-step processes and long acronyms and gives you just what you want, stories that truly matter and will impact your life. Meet your host, Brett Thornton, a father, retailer, speaker, motivator, and lover of storytelling. Your transformational listening starts now. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Just Stories with BT. This is a very exciting week because, as you know, we are in the middle of season three, which means we are featuring authors. And the author that I have today is, A, incredible. Her story is amazing. And this is her second book coming out um, soon. And so it's a perfect time to release the podcast. And so welcome, Heather Monahan, to the show. Thanks for having me. Yes. So... Typically, um, what I do is I try to give the audience a good backstory. So in case you are one of the five people living under a rock and don't know who Heather is, um, I'm going to tell you in about 30 seconds, okay? And then afterwards, you fill in the gaps because I'm going to miss a lot of things, okay? Sound good? Sure. Okay, so as I said, this is Heather. Um, So Heather was born in Worcester, Massachusetts, um, had an interesting and difficult upbringing, but obviously made it through, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, She went to Clark University where she got her bachelor's in psychology, which obviously led her into a career in sales, like what's happened to a lot of people. Um, So she went to Gallo Wine and became the top sales executive there. And then shortly after, started at Wilkes Broadcasting, where same thing, she became a top top executive and did so well that she was actually offered equity in the company. Um, The one caveat was that she had to move to Saginaw, Michigan, where she knew nobody. So I want to get back to that, too. Um, And then that went really well, sold in 2003. That parlayed her into a new career at Beasley Broadcasting, where she was for over a decade, started out as a director of sales, eventually a VP, and then broke through that kind of C-suite glass door and became the chief revenue officer. During that time, the most amazing thing that would ever happen to her happened, which is she had a son, um, Dylan, which is amazing. I have a son as well. Um, And near the end of that, she started becoming a professional speaker, traveling around. She was dubbed the most influential woman in radio. And then in 2017, everything changed, which is she had this... uh, amazing CEO who had promoted her three times. And then he stepped out and her, his daughter stepped in who she coins as the villain, which we'll get into. Um, And she was fired from her job in 2017 after having this amazing career. And looking back, um, probably the best thing that could have ever happened as that sparked her into writing her first book, which was The Confidence Creator, which became a number one bestseller. Uh, she launched Fawcett Heels as the CEO. She was Thrive Global, named her the lim- limit-breaking female founder. Um, she started her own podcast. She was on a TEDx. She became a guest professor at Harvard and University of Miami. And now she is just launching her second book, Overcome Your Villains. And she's here today on the podcast. Well, yeah, that was a pretty good overview. <laughs> nice. So I definitely skipped, right, about 18 years, um, which is your first 18 years. And so I kind of know a little bit of the story because I watched this video. I don't know, you were speaking somewhere and it was on YouTube and I watched it and you talked about your childhood a little bit, but would you tell the audience, you know, like, so how did you grow up? 
Yeah, I grew up really poor. My mom was a single mom with four kids. Um, we were on food stamps. We lived in a trailer for a while in the back of my grandparents' home. And so at a really young age, I was nine or 10, I started my first job. I had a paper route and then that morphed into, I started bussing tables at diners. And then I started working at fast food restaurants, which led to waitressing in other restaurants, which led to bartending, which really over an 18 year span of time was me fine tuning my sales skills and really developing mm -hmm. sales skills and you know interactions with customers, upselling customers, repeat business. And I had no idea at the time, it's so clear to me now when I look back, but that really trained me for what I was about to enter into, which was a career, a over 20 year career in corporate America in sales and sales leadership. So it, um, at the time it was definitely a struggle, but it set me up for a lot of success. Yeah, and what, you know, I know you ended up in corporate America, especially in sales all those years, you know, do you think um, something about your situation, like also kind of led you into sales, like it just kind of bred you because you had to kind of make it happen? Well, I just, I personally thought to myself at a young age, I don't want to be on food stamps. I don't want to struggle, you know, and, and what way, how can I get out of this? And so I, that's why I started working so young. And then while I was working and waitressing and bartending, I started realizing the people with the most money that were my clients were salespeople. And so I would start engaging with them, asking them questions, you know, how do you always have a brand new Mercedes or how do you do this or that? And they would explain, oh, you need to get into sales if you want to make a lot of money. And so I was simply chase, back then just chasing a paycheck. There was no strategy behind it. I just wanted to make a lot of money. Yeah. And so, you know, you go to school. So obviously Clark University, which I'd never heard of, I looked it up. Um, and so you study psychology. So what was the, the mindset behind that? Again, there was no, you know, big strategy behind it was I like the classes and it ends up that, you know, sales and psychology are very much aligned. You know, for there was a point in time when I was in school that I was thinking I bartended at night, you know, all throughout college. And I was thinking to myself, maybe I should become a psychologist. It's really interesting, you know, understanding what's happening with the mind. However, I would always be brought back to the sales um, idea of making a lot of money. And then once I found out you had to go back to school, if you wanted to be a psychologist, I said, forget that, you know, I'm going to take the path <laughs> to make money fast. And that's how I ended yeah. up at, at Gallo. That's funny. I know that um, it's a topic in my house all the time. I talk to my son, he's just became a teenager. So he's 13, but we're starting to have those first kind of talks about college or maybe what do you want to do? What do you like? You know, just those like kind of things. And so we were talking about my college and he asked me about, well, what did you do? You know, I was like, well, you know, I majored in um, political science. You know, he's like, well, did you do anything with it? I was like, sort of, you know, like, no, because I got into sales. I said, but what I did learn was I learned how to have a conversation with what I think anybody, you know, because politics is something that's so polar. But if you learn how to navigate it, it's something you can kind of do with anybody, you know. So I was trying to explain to him, like, a lot of people go to school and they end up not doing what they studied, but it doesn't mean those four years weren't extremely valuable, you know, because it's the relationships you learn how to handle so many different, you know, um, not just people, but also just dynamics, you know, and so it spurs you into these different things. But I, like you also realize like, oh, wait a minute, like, I would like to make money and I'd like to do stuff and I'd like to travel. I would probably rather go into sales as well. So kind of down, down the same path. So tell us, um, you got into Gala Wine and, you know, I know you mentioned on your, I mentioned your bio, but you became this top salesperson. So what was it that kind of set you apart? Like, how did you become successful so fast? 
you know, well, again, I had been really in sales for 18 years, although I hadn't wrapped my head around that, you know, so I had a, a head start on everyone, first and foremost. And then secondly, there was only three women on the 100 person sales force. So I was different and unique just in the fact of showing up as who I was. And I just outworked everybody. People would say, you know, this is the way we do it. And we go home at 530. And this is the way you show up in the morning. And I thought, mm, that doesn't sound like a winning recipe for success. And oftentimes at traditional companies like a Gallo, people will want to do things the same way they've always done it. And I have always been someone that, that thinks, wait a minute, let's challenge ourselves. There's got to be a better, different or new way that we can test or try to see if it works. And so I was constantly just working harder than everybody else, constantly trying to find a new way to see something or approach something. And when you show up differently and you do things differently, you get different results. Yeah, absolutely. And so how did you make the jump then to Wilkes? What was that like? So I had become the youngest brand manager in the company um, for the state of Massachusetts. And they promoted me. I was the number one salesperson. They promoted me to manager. And I started working for the president of the company. He ultimately, I hadn't been working for him directly about, to, until that point. And he sexually harassed me. So I quit immediately. I just wanted to leave. And I went to an event with my then boyfriend and I was just chatting people up, you know, a networking opportunity. I had no idea who I was speaking to. And I just started chatting up a gentleman sitting at a table. And this is, you know, prior to Google being available. And I yeah. just hit it off with this guy. And halfway through the conversation, he said, you've got to work for me. And I said, you can't afford me. And he said, give me a number. And I said, $80,000. Turns out this man's worth, you know, $100 million. And I had no idea. I could have gotten a much better deal. However, I didn't. Um, so I ended up taking the job, went to work for him and started the next day selling radio instead of selling wine. Nice. And so you mentioned that, you know, you eventually got equity and I saw a talk where you talked about having to move to, what is it, Saginaw. And I, I had to look up where that was. So what was that experience like? And, and what is it like when you move your entire life for work and don't know anybody? Yeah, I mean, listen, here's the thing is that if you want a big reward, you have to take on a big risk. So it was a huge risk to jump on a plane in my early 20s alone and, you know, move out without my partner. He was staying back in, in Boston and I was the one that had to go be the feet on the street. And, you know, taking I was in my early 20s, I was so much younger than everybody else that worked at the operation. We purchased the operation for 25 million and it had a huge team of existing employees, most of which were older white men. And so it was really challenging that they did not want to be led or report to a young woman. And I was their boss overnight and I was the owner that they had to deal with. And so <laughs> it was it was a challenging time. I'm not going to say any of that time in my life was easy. It wasn't. I gave up so much, so much sacrifice. I worked seven days a week. I never vacationed for almost three years. But ultimately, my job was to drive rev revenues as quickly as I could. And we accelerated revenues beyond rapidly. And we sold that property for $55 million, netting 30 in under three years. Wow, that's crazy. And did your team, you know, that you initially took over, like you said, like some of these, um, you know, older white guys that are, you know, wondering like, hey, why am I having to listen to this new person? Or what is the situation? Did that change over time? Did they end up? You know, like you having a good relationship with them or is it something that you had to change yourself to like figure that all out? No, I fired. I fired a lot of that. <laughs> right. So one of the things as a leader that you learn and know, you know, very quickly in any leadership position is that if you don't have a team that's upfront, honest with you, supporting you and, you know, being direct with you, you don't have a team. 
And so I knew very quickly that I had to make a mark. And yes, you can build credibility and trust with people over time, but that doesn't happen overnight. And I had, I needed things to happen overnight. So I fired um, a number of people right away to get everybody's attention and let them know I wasn't going to put up with people disrespecting me. They didn't know me. And if you chose to disrespect me, you could find another job. So I let a lot of people go immediately. And that was a really smart move because then I was able to go recruit people who wanted to come be a part of a team that I was building. So they were you know, running and gunning with me. And very quickly, we shifted the culture. And it was important that it started out, um, you know, letting people go. They basically made their choice because on the first day there, I said, listen, I want everyone to stay here. If you'd like to stay and be a part of growth, make a lot of money and have a great time. Let's work together. If you don't want to be here, I'm not going to mince words. There's a door and you can leave. So I was very upfront with them and it paid off over time. We shifted the culture. We had a very fast paced culture of people who wanted to win, wanted to make a lot of money and wanted to have fun. And we did it pretty quickly. Nice. Yeah, I've always found that, you know, there's, even though it sounds horrible and, you know, if HR is listening out there, they're probably not going to like I say this, but at the end of the day, I've always found that sometimes the quickest way to get to that really, you know, top-notch team is that you do have to fire people, you know, because at the end of the day, you have to set a tone of like, hey, this is the expectation. And if you're perceived as someone holding it back, you can't, as a leader, let them keep doing that. You know, because all of a sudden it undermines everything you're doing, you know, and it's like that, it's almost like that sacrificial lamb of like it happens and everyone goes, oh, wait a minute, this is serious. So this person's really serious, but also I get, I better get my stuff together, you know, and you kind of figure that out quickly, you know. Um, I had similar to you, I had a chance when I was in my young 20s to, I took a job and it was this business to business sales stuff, you know, and, and this owner's like, hey, you could do amazing. I'm going to move you to Chicago and you're going to run this whole office, you know, and, and I'm like, great. Turns out, it ended up being this big pyramid scheme, but that's not the point. The point was when I get out there, we hired these 30 people and we had three different managers and we all had teams of seven or eight people. And the first day people are picking, you know, different workers they thought would be really good. But the job was, was, was these young kids going business to business in downtown Chicago. So the only thing I cared about was at the end of each day, the first five days, I looked at the log, how many doors were people hitting? And then when everyone was like, it was almost like a football draft. They were drafting the teams like the end of the week. I didn't even look at the people. All I looked at was the log and who had the most doors. And I picked the people that had 105 doors a day, 110 doors a day. Cause I'm like, listen, these are grinders. I don't care about the other stuff. I'll work on, you know, their technique and their sales pitch and all that. I just know they're hustlers. And so that was my success story. It was like, I picked the team of hustlers. And at the end of the day, as you know, like if you have people who are grinders, the other stuff, the soft skills, that's where we come as leaders, right? We work on those, but you can't replace the grind and the hustle. Like you just can't manufacture it. You know what I mean? Um, so you do that. Um, you're doing well there. That ends up selling. And then how did you start um, in like, what is the big chunk of your career, right? When you went to the next job, how did you start that? What was that transition? So when we sold the company, the company that was acquiring our company put a non-compete on me. They thought they were going to be able to acquire me. They didn't understand. I had no intention of ever staying in Michigan, right? I was only there for my partner and I was leaving right away. So because they, I had that non-compete, I could no longer work with my partner. We had wanted to go do another deal in another part of the country. They blocked us from having that opportunity. So um, I said, who should I work for now? And he said, you have enough money. You don't need to work for a while. And I thought, but I only know to work. I need to work. And he said, if you're not going to work with me and you want to work for someone else, why don't you go work for a good friend of mine? He's almost like a second father. Um, and he pointed me in the, in the direction of my old CEO. So I flew down, met with his son. 
interviewed with them and I took a big step backwards for a much smaller job for a lot less money in order to make a big leap forwards. Nice. And then tell like in, in a minute, you know, explain that path because you were director of sales, then VP of sales, then chief human resource or chief revenue officer. What was that like? And, and how long did it take you to kind of, you know, climb that entire ladder? I mean, that really happened over a decade where, you know, basically I, whatever role I was in, I would outperform and overachieve. And then I would go in and ask for that next, you know, opportunity. Sometimes when the job didn't exist, I'd pitch myself for the job that didn't exist. And so ultimately I was always the driver in that company. I was always the one revenue focused. I was always the one that was talking about how to move things to the next level. And so it became this constant pressure on the company that I was going to advance, whether I was going to advance there or somewhere else that was going to be happening. And so for a long time, it made sense uh, for them to advance me, you know, in the company until the point at which um, the CEO who I worked for my entire time, my entire 14 years, he became ill. And when he became ill, he chose his daughter to replace him. And she had been my arch nemesis. She had been the CFO. Well, I was a CRO, so we were really on opposing sides. I wanted to make money and she didn't want me to spend it. And so um, in the end, you know, uh, she called me into her office and basically said, I'm going to, I'm, you know, I just took over. I'm the new CEO and I no longer need a chief revenue officer. So I no longer need you. Wow. And so that's perfect because that leads us right up to when you, you know, left, obviously that happened and then you started your new book, which I want to get into. But before that, you mentioned something that, um, I really, really, really love, and I'm a huge believer in, which is you said, you know, you created some of those roles for yourself. And the reason I love that so much is because I did the same thing. And I've seen it with a lot of my colleagues who have, who have advanced, especially in corporate America, because at some point you, you hit a certain level and you're like, okay, well, what's the next level? And I think that a big mistake that people make in corporate America is they don't look at themselves almost as if it's like an entrepreneur, like, okay, I have this much worth. I have this value here's what I would love to do here. But at the end of the day, if you can't provide this, like I've got to find. And I find that if you have a ton of value as an employee, the, the employees will figure they'll be like, okay, I don't want to lose this person. They bring this, this, and this, what can we do? And so oftentimes I tell people, it's the same thing you do. It's like, make your own path, write it. I wrote a job description and submitted it to my CEO years ago. Like here it is. And then sure enough, position was open in three weeks, almost verbatim, right? It's like, and that's not something that other people can't do. I just don't see it happening a lot, you know? So what was it that like, did, was it just that you had the confidence of, I know I can do this because you'd already had success or what kind of spurred you to do that? Yeah, I'm sure that, you know, as I mentioned, I took a big step back in responsibility, in pay, in comp, and, you know, in, in upside. And I did that knowing I was going to a company that was much larger than the one that I had just sold but I knew that there was going to be no sales leader within that organization that was, you know, similar to me. And so I just, I had probably had a lot of confidence based on that very recent achievement that I had just accomplished. And so I, I went in, I said, what are the expectations? Give me the goals, break them down month, quarter, annual. And when I was in there just a few months, I had blown every number away and I was no, number one in the company. And so I called the president of the company and said, let's meet for lunch. And I had gone through, I knew him well enough to know his fears. I knew he didn't like change. I knew he didn't like to work hard. I knew he had trust issues. I knew that he wanted to make shareholders a lot of money and he wanted people to leave him alone. So I went in kind of knowing that recipe of how he thinks. Mm -hmm. I put myself in his shoes and I played out, you know, how can I solve all of his problems? 
and address his fears. And so I did that in the pitch. The pitch was amazing. And um, he basically said no. So that day I, I left, I went back to my office and I did not have a child back at that point in time. And one of the things when you don't have a child is you can move wherever you want, right? And yeah. I had already moved a couple of times. So I wasn't afraid of moving. And so I went back to my office and I said, well, that stinks. He doesn't want to, you know, that was really short-sighted on his part. Oh, well, I'll just take another job. So I started calling for big opportunities that were in the media industry that I was in. I found one and they offered me the job. And so this was a couple of days later, I called him back. I said, listen, I want to meet with you one last time before I'm going to leave. We, we met for lunch and I said, have you changed your mind? He said, no. I said, then I'm here to give my resignation. And he said, why would you do that? I said, because I was made for more. You know, I, I took a step back to come here. I've shown you what I can do. There shouldn't be an issue with trust any longer. I'm ready to now get back to work at the level I should be running at. And another company's already offered me a job. So he said, hang tight. He left the building for five minutes, came back, and he offered me VP of sales. And I said, where did you go? And he said, oh, I had to call my father. I couldn't make that decision on my own. And he taught me a really valuable lesson that day, which is never take a no from someone who can't give you a yes. And so I got the yes, I got the job, and then the rest is history. <laughs> That's wild. And so that takes us up to 2017. So obviously the the daughter takes over, you know, and in your book, the first book, you know, that comes out, you know, you talk really go into depth in the story, but walk us through that first week or two after you get fired. What's that like? You know, because by this time you're now a mother, right? And so you, you're a parent, right? And you've got that stress. You've got, hey, I just spent all this time building all this like, you know, company cachet. I've gotten to this level. And then like, wait, wait, how did this happen? Why am I here? What was that first couple of weeks like? It wasn't really the first couple of weeks. It was the first couple of days. I did something really smart that went against what everyone told me to do. And that everything changed as soon as I did that. And I think that was day three. I did it. Basically what I did was I decided to post that I had been fired and basically let the world know I've just been fired and that I need some help. And everyone in the world that I know called me and said, take the post down. You don't want anyone in corporate America to know you got fired, hide that. And I thought, why hide that? I'm in good company. JK Rowling was fired. Steve Jobs was fired. Mark Cuban was fired. Oprah Winfrey fired. Now Heather Monaghan has been fired. I think this is like the moment that I should be celebrating. And I chose in that moment to say to them, thank you for your concerns. However, I'm the one that, you know, this is my life and I'm going to lead it the way that I, I believe I should. And that was a brilliant decision. And again, it was a big risk, right? They could have been right. Maybe nobody would ever offer me a job again because I've been labeled fired but that wasn't what happened. I had hundreds of offers. I had hundreds of opportunities because of that post. People saw I was available. And so people wanted to help me. They wanted to offer me jobs. And right then Froggy from the Elvis Duran show tweeted at me, Heather, if there's anything I can do to help you, I'm all in. And I tweeted right back, get me on the show. And he did. And so I flew to New York City. I didn't know what I was gonna say, but I knew if I could reach a larger audience, I could reach more opportunity. And so, you know, this is just a good suggestion to anyone. If you're in the same space with the same people, you're just going to keep seeing recycled same opportunities, pick your head up and start moving into new spaces, which is what I did. Elvis has a show with 10 million listeners. And I went on that show and halfway through that interview, he said to me, well, Heather, obviously you're writing a book. And I never thought I was writing a book. And I said, well, obviously I am, you know, basically I transferred his confidence in me to me. And um, I jumped on a plane and I Googled, how do you write a book? And uh, 
then I just started writing. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. And, and the book came out not that much later. So that seemed, must have been a pretty crazy six, seven months. Like, how did you just handle it all? Well, I'd been fired, right? So uh, my day was freed up. My son was in school and I, I was fired. So I sat every single day. I'm very disciplined and very clear when I want something. You know, I mocked up a book. I Number one, I held myself accountable because I said in front of 10 million people, I'm writing a book and it's coming out. So accountability is really important. Clarity on what you're doing is important. I came home, I mocked up the book, I put it on my table and I got to work. There was nothing glamorous about it, right? I sat at my kitchen table for months, endlessly writing, not knowing if it would be good, not knowing if I'd sell one book, but again, willing to take the risk and just go all in and go for it. And for those who haven't read it, can you give us the, give us the 10,000 foot, you know, 90 second, you know, um, version of Confidence Creator? Confidence Creator is a compilation of my lowest moments in my career and in my life and how the strategies that I use to leverage them to ultimately advance me that the reader can go ahead and implement and use for their own life. Nice. And, you know, there was something that, that I read that I really loved. And I want you to give me like the backstory to it, but um, you had a quote that said, you know, one of the things that you do, if fear pops in your head, is you looked at it like a green light. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, no, I just chose to, um, I actually, I act this whole thing out in my TED talk, but um, basically what happened was, you know, there was a lot of fear for me around trying new things, whether it be showing up, I'm supposed to be a sales leader. How am I going to show up as an author? Does you know, are you even allowed to do that, right? How can I show up as a podcast host? I was a person on the other side, monetizing podcasts for other people. How can I, you know, be someone totally different at now that I'm four, in my mid forties, is that even something that is possible, right? The risks seemed so massive and so out of my familiar zone that I, you know, I really was dealing with a lot of fear. And so I ultimately chose, I just made a choice to reframe fear and um, choose to see it as a green light that means go. So every time I would feel fear, I would step into it. And then as I did that, things would work out and things would go better and the fear would dissipate and disappear. And then I started seeing fear as a green light that means go and go faster. And I started taking on larger and more massive and bigger goals. And the more you start building that momentum, it's you're building a muscle and muscle memory. And, and suddenly it becomes your natural pattern that, you want to do big, scary things every day. And if you're not doing something big and scary every day, then you've got a real problem. Yeah, no, I love that. And um, yeah, when I read it, I was like, okay, you know, this is really good because, you know, so many people are probably where they are in life because they're avoiding their fears, right? Or they're doing everything they can not to feel that way. But at the end of the day, you know, there's certain things in life you can't avoid. And so if you're, if you start training yourself that, Hey, as soon as I feel this, okay, why is it that I don't want to do it? And then wait, how do I overcome and just make sure I just go do this first? Because you feel so much better about yourself when you start overcoming those things that way, you know, especially like you said, when you build muscle memory to just constantly do it, you know, it was like, I read a book uh, two years ago on when your alarm goes off that you just go five, four, three, two, one, and step up. Right. Like, and it was great feedback because I was like, okay, how do I get good at getting up to go to the gym at five? Cause I had never done it. And then I read this thing and I started doing it. And now here I am two years later, every single morning, it's the exact same thing. Alarm, five, four, three, two, one, go. And it was like, this. there's no excuse. You just train yourself. But now it's such a muscle memory thing and a brain thing that I don't even think about. I just do it, you know? Right. And I think so many of us 
you know, avoid things and unfortunately just makes things worse. And then you feel worse about yourself or worse about your problems, you know, as opposed to just attacking it, you know? So, um, tell the listeners, because I love this, you know, you had, um, and I don't know if it was in your Ted talk or not, or, and it might be the first book, but you talked about how you made a marketing plan for yourself. You had like a, this five-step process that you would use for like, a, you know, a marketing agency would use, but you used it for yourself to build confidence. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that is my TED talk. So um, it's a 10 minute TED talk. Anyone can go to YouTube and, and Google it, put in Heather Monaghan TED talk, it will show up. But basically I break down, you know, I was in marketing and advertising for over 20 years. So one of the things that I became an expert in was advertising. I knew how to put together advertising campaigns for clients, whether it be Anheuser-Busch or GM, you know, the largest clients out there to run successful ad campaigns. And I started thinking to myself, wait a minute, when I was back in corporate America and I was in a very negative situation with that woman that ended up firing me, you know, I wasn't living my best life. I wasn't showing up as my most powerful, powerful self. And I wasn't stepping into fear back then. I was definitely avoiding it. And so I started thinking to myself, what's one thing I'm really good at? Okay, I know how to create really successful ad campaigns. Okay, well, why don't I do that for me? Instead of doing it for everyone else all the time, why don't I create my own advertising campaign for me, to me, to create confidence within me? And that's what I did. You know, I really broke it down exactly the same way that I do for all I did for all of my clients back then, back in, in media. And I put together an audio campaign, a visual campaign, powerful messaging, a call to action. I added music in it as a music bed, you know, because jing a jingle will elicit memory and have you feeling emotion. And I played that campaign with frequency because frequency is what sells and ingrains and primes people's minds so that subconsciously you're wanting to do things because someone is programming your mind for it. I was just programming my mind for something I wanted it to do, which was ultimately step into fear, just go bigger, believe in myself, show up as, a, as that really confident version of me that I knew I had within me and it paid off. Yeah, no, absolutely. I love that. You know, I know, um, in a similar vein, I had a, a friend a few years back, like I'm a single dad and I have two kids and I was in this, I got into this pattern of, of, you know, being successful at work and as a parent of the kids, but then viewing myself as a man um, that, Hey, you know, because I had a failed marriage because of these things, like I couldn't, I, I couldn't do well in certain areas and it would get to me. Like I would get myself in the side. I can't do that. I, you know? And my friends are like, what are you talking about? You know, like you need to get rid of that. You know, you actually know you're doing well, you're doing this, you're doing this, get in this mindset of telling yourself if you, as soon as you hear those thoughts, like, no, actually I can do this. I can overcome. I can figure this out. I can figure out how to braid my daughter's hair. You know, I just got to watch YouTube videos. I can do it, you know? And, uh, but to your point, like at first, sometimes it's kind of cheesy. Like, why am I telling myself these certain mantras? Cause I wrote this thing out, but over time, I started believing the mantra, you know, like it just seeped in, you know, and, and it works. And so when I, it's yeah, no when I, different than an advertising campaign, McDonald's doesn't spend billions in advertising because it doesn't work. They do it because it works. They're programming your brain to want to purchase their French fries. Like this is research back, right? Like, this works. So I'm so <laughs> glad to hear that it worked for you too. It will work for anyone. Absolutely. So that takes us to now. So tell us about Overcome Your Villain. Yeah, so um, during the pandemic, I uh, signed with HarperCollins Leadership, and I had written my book proposal. I had been told no 14 times by my agent before I finally got a yes on 15. We were told no by six different uh, publishers before we got uh, our first few yeses and signed with Harper. 
Um, but super excited to be doing this book and very, very different doing a book with a traditional publisher versus self-publishing. They're entirely different. And I'll let everybody know after my book's out for six months, which one was the better approach because at, you know you don't know until you see the, the sales and see the revenues. But you know, it's really about um, overcome your villains is a powerful three-step process that anyone can use to overcome any adversity in business or life. And it's ultimately around the beliefs that you hold, the actions that you take, and the knowledge that you surround yourself with. That's awesome. And um, you know, what do you think by people reading this book, what is what is the probably the number one thing you you're hoping they get out of it? I mean, it'll be different for everybody, but I, my goal is that everyone has a roadmap to overcome any challenge and adversity that they're facing in these very challenging times. Awesome. And obviously like, you know, villains is the title of this one. It's a part of the first book too, you know, like what is your advice to people who, you know, maybe in this corporate America, they may have somebody who kind of fits this role of villain, you know, what is your advice on like, Hey, step one, how do you make this relationship either better or at least better for you, especially like, you know, psychologically, you know, since it can be so difficult to deal with someone who is actually opposing you? Well, typically, if you've gotten into a situation like that, the number one villain in your life is probably in your own head, but you don't realize that yet. That's one thing that I look back on now in my past, and I recognize that now I was my number one villain. I was allowing someone to treat me poorly. I was allowing someone to speak down to me, to ignore my emails, to pass me by, you know, really passive aggressive behavior. I was allowing that to go on. And it wasn't until I started running that ad campaign to myself about confidence, I started standing up to it and started saying, excuse me, you didn't see me. Hello, how are you? Right, and addressing passive behavior head on. It, it, not in an argumentative way, but in a very direct manner, as if to say, I'm not gonna allow myself to be disrespected any longer. That might've worked in the past, doesn't work anymore. And if you wanna move forward in any type of dialogue with me, you're going to have to respond. And of course, pe people don't like that when you decide to start changing if it makes them uncomfortable. And in my situation, yeah. it made my villain very uncomfortable. She liked when I didn't respond. She liked if I just, you know, became quiet or didn't say anything to her. She hated when I started saying, I put a read receipt on that email. I know you saw it. Why did you not respond? Right. She didn't want that conversation to occur. So it really changed the dynamic. It is not shocking now that I look back that I got fired. I changed. I started showing up as a powerful version of me that respected myself, that had boundaries, that wasn't tolerating people treating me poorly. Because in the end, we are always teaching people how to treat us. It isn't a mystery. It's something we're either allowing for or creating. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I see uh, a lot of people who get stuck in this habit of constantly apologizing or saying sorry, or, you know, when you're like, hey, if we run into each other, why is it, why is sorry on your side? Why is it sorry? You know, and this is, but that's just what we do. And I think it's a confidence issue where people just over time, they get stuck in these route, these routes of like, well, you know, like I'll just avoid conflict. I'll just be the, the better person here. But at the end of the day, that just chips away at you, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And it's not about being the better person. I hear about this from a lot of people. I'm just too nice, they'll say. That's not true. You're not respecting yourself. You're not creating boundaries and putting yourself first. And there is, there's nothing wrong with being nice, but there's no such thing as being too nice. That's people confusing being disrespected. And, and a lot of that can go back to how they grew up and maybe how they saw you know parents model behaviors 
but it, it's important for people to detach from that and say, you know what, I do know powerful people in the world that are really nice, uh, but they don't get walked on. They don't get treated poorly because they're teaching people how to treat them and you can too. So how did this, the lessons you learned in the book um, and that you talk about with, and I'm assuming with the second book too, you know, how have you applied those as a parent? Have you utilized that with your child? You know, sometimes the, the most important parenting moments, in my opinion, happen when you don't realize they're happening. It happens when your child's watching you, right? Not when yeah. you're giving them a lecture or sitting down to solve a problem. For me, the best moment that I've had as a parent, or one of the best moments is my son went away to um, academic camp this summer. And while he was there, many states away, a plane ride away, he broke his arm. And that was really oh scary God. because yeah, he, he's in the emergency room alone with no one he knows. And you know, it was just, a, it was a really scary thing for me. I was flipping out. And a few days later I, I got a flight and I went up to see him and I was assuming he was gonna have bags packed and be ready to get out of there, you know, crying and just devastated. And he wasn't, he was such a stronger version of the person that I thought I was walking, he was stronger than I was. And I walked in and I said, how are you holding this together? How are you cutting? How are you eating? How are you writing? This is your writing hand. He broke his left hand, he's left-handed. He said, I taught myself to write with my other hand. I said, how do you get dressed? He says, it's not easy, but every day I figure it out. How are you taking a shower? Not easy, but I figure it out. Honey, do you wanna come home? No, I think I can, I can make it work. And I just, I sat there in awe of this kid. And it was funny, the next day I was driving him back to the camp to drop him off. And he said, mom, you might've forgotten, but we can do hard things. And he gave me a kiss. He got out and he went back to camp and he finished there and he won creative writer of the week and with the wrong hand. And I was just so incredibly proud of his resilience and tenacity and commitment to see something through and find a way when it didn't seem like there was one. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. And I think you're right. You know, as parents, you know, we can, there's actually a study, I think it's, uh, I can't remember, it's Harvard or I can't remember what school did it, but it's a, it's the longest standing study on the impact we have on our kids as parents. So they've been studying um, households since like the 40s or 50s. And basically the only stipulation is the environment has to be safe. So it's all, you know, different socioeconomic backgrounds, races, ethnicities, all these backgrounds. But as long as the environment was safe, they study these families. So they pick another, it's like a thousand kids. They pick every year and they've been doing it for whatever, 80 years. And the study is kind of crazy because basically what it says is that as a parent, we actually only have about 25% of an influence and that 75% genetically, the kids kind of end up who they are by the time they're 25. And that by the time between 21 and 25, they really become this baked person that they were kind of meant to be. But that 25%, you know, is these inherent things they pick up. And they said that so much of what they pick up is what they just watch. So you think like, hey, you're saying this thing and I'm going to tell them this and all this, but it's like, no, it's your behavior that they witnessed is what sticks with them. You know, if you were procrastinating, if you do like, that's just how they pick up, you know? And, and I remember reading it and kind of being like, oh my God, like just thinking back like a reel of my life, what have I done? You know, what have I, what example have I said? But to your point, you know, I, I actually experienced that this summer too, which my kids, um, my kid's mom works in Montauk in the summers and we live in San Diego. So, so the kids go back and forth and, and here I am thinking, I have all these fears around them traveling and going back and forth. But to your point, they're so capable of all these things. And they're always like, dad, chill out. I'm fine. Like, it's good. I packed myself. I went here. I was in the city. You know, I do all these things. And it kind of blows you away as a parent because you're like, wait a minute. Like, 
you were so little and so like I had to do everything and now you're not and you're so capable but I think if you give them the confidence that they can do those things then they have no problem you know what I mean Lawrence I think a lot of parents put the fear into the kids actually unintentionally by just well what about this what about that and kind of making them scared as opposed to saying hey you're going to be fine it's going to be awesome you're going to do this this and this and then go you know and then that's the hard part letting them go you know so tell me um last thing is obviously this season is all authors and um you were in a position where like you said you never thought you were going to write a book right and you did and now you're on to your second one so what if someone's sitting here and they've got this unbelievable story or this something inside them that's got to get out you know like what advice would you give to them to get started hold yourself accountable go on social media and post that you're writing your first book and it's going to be coming out in a year and you can't wait to hear what everyone thinks reverse engineer the pressure on yourself right hold yourself accountable to other people and give yourself a deadline to do it take another book and put a white piece of paper over it and sign your name at the bottom start making it real and start putting the work in do not overthink it there is no glamorous strategy that you should map out this and that. No, just start writing. I just started writing at first. I hated that lady that fired me, right? And those the first three days I wrote about that. And then I scrapped it and I started moving on to something else. Just start writing and start taking action and hold yourself accountable. And before you know it, you'll have a book. Love it. Thank you so much. And that's actually great advice. I love it. Reverse yourself into something because once you put it out there it's hard to backtrack it so that's really good advice so i appreciate it thank you so much for coming on tell everyone like so obviously they can go to the website but just tell if they're interested in the new book or even your first book confidence creator what's the best way to get it where should they go how do they check you out well if you go right now to overcomeyourvillains.com and you pre-order my book it's on sale for 24 dollars you get to download my $500 bonus bundle for free. And that is going to be going away when the book comes out. I'm going to pull that bonus offer away. But right now you'll get my confidence video course, my email program, uh, my Overcome Your Villains workbook, the first chapter of the new book, you'll get ahead of everybody else. So you get all these bonus opportunities because I'm trying to get the pre-orders in. It's basically a big thank you for you supporting the, the new book. Awesome. Well, I'm going to do it today. So you'll have one today coming through oh, thank and, you. <laughs> uh, and I'll, and I want to get my whole team to do it too. So we'll have a big, a big chunk of it. And then maybe afterwards I'll hit you back up so we can ask for some more advice. So thank you again so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Everybody go out, get her new book. Thank you, Heather. Have an amazing day. Thanks, Brett. You too.